Pastor at New City, glad you're here. Uh, time change weekend. I have taken note that you came to the second service, not the first, and so I'm judging you for that. Um, but I, I do. I am glad that you're here, and uh, just uh, in honor of you being here, everybody gets a free pump of hand sanitizer today. So it's just free for you. Uh, wash your hands, you dirty sinners. Okay. All right. So uh, be good news. This is where this is the kind of series we're in. We're studying Luke's gospel uh, during this series. Uh, I want to encourage you to get the experience guide if you haven't gotten that to help lead your family through that. Uh, there are also at the, there, there are hard copies uh, if you're you know analog and that's your you know how you roll. Uh, at the Welcome Center, if you're a PDF user, you can get those on the app or on the website. I encourage you to do that. Uh, they'll help you uh, in your family time, help you in your personal time, help you with your community group. All right, so when it comes to our money, big idea here for the text. Uh, this is it. So uh, the, whole, the whole text is summarized here. Uh, and so you can just read this and go, if, I guess, if you want to. But uh, when, it, when it comes to our money, we are not the master, we are the manager. And that's the setup here for Luke 16. So when you open the passage, it says, he also said to his disciples, so he He's kind of turned the page here in instructing Pharisees and, and their living. He's going to be talking here to the disciples of the Pharisees listening in. You find that later in Luke 16. But he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called uh, him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. So it's a story about a manager who's fired. Uh, for mismanagement. And the story of a manager being fired for his mismanagement is uh, a way for Jesus to sort of say to you and to me that we are um, not the master, that we are the managers, and that we should not waste or mismanage the resources that God has given us. Uh, that is the charge that was brought against this wasteful manager in 16.1. Charges were brought, this man was wasting possessions, wasting what he was entrusted to manage. And so a big idea, this is a principle that you'll find throughout the Bible taught multiple times over and over again, is that we are stewards of the resources that we've been given. We don't own them. Uh, we are stewards, not owners. That's a big kind of idea. And we're supposed to be stewarding the resources that God has given us well. Uh, another way of saying it a little more harshly is that you are not able to do whatever you want with money that does not belong to you. Uh, that is essentially the charge that was brought against the mismanager. He's managing resources however he saw fit, and the master said, not going to be the way it goes, you're fired. That's the sort of setup for this entire uh, parable. And it's a common theme, we, we bring it up here a lot at New City, that everything you have is a gift. Like you may have done a lot with what you were given, but everything you have is a gift. Um, you may have done a lot with the mind that you were given, um, but you cannot deny that it was a mind that you were given. You might have done a lot with the circumstances that you were given, uh, but you can't, you, can't, you, know, you can't deny that those circumstances uh, have not been given to everybody. You see, everything you have is a gift. Your life is a gift. Uh, it's kind of hard to manage money when you're dead. So you're living, you're here, and so uh, that's a gift. Your health is a gift. Whatever, you know, uh, it is not all of us have the same health, but some of us you know, are struggling with health. But your health, the health that you have, the energy you have, that's a gift to be stewarded. Uh, your circumstances are a gift. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't ask to be born uh, in the context that you were born into. Uh, you didn't ask to, be, to have the family that you, that you have. Those were circumstances uh, that you experienced in life. They were, all, they were a gift, uh, something to be stewarded. Uh, your talents are a gift. Uh, you, you know, we have certain gifts that are true of us that are not true of other people, and those are gifts that God has given us to steward well. We are responsible for every gift that God has given us. First uh, Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so the point here is that we're to be evaluating how have we been gifted? With what resources have we been gifted? How can we use those resources for the betterment of people, for the glory of God? See, the manager was fired because he, two things, he was dishonest and he was wasteful. And so his dishonesty and his wastefulness were the, kind of the two criteria. So you look at verse 1, wasting possessions, that's a, a real charge here in 16.1. and 16.8, uh, Jesus says that the master commended the dishonest manager. He was dishonest in his dealings. And so here you have a wasteful and dishonest manager who's been mismanaging the master's funds. To, to kind of rightly understand this, the manager was like a CEO or CFO of a large family business. We know it was large because of the amounts that we're talking about in the parable. So you have this large family business. He is charged to execute this family fund. Uh, he's been executing the family fund in a way that has been both dishonest and wasteful. And it appears the manager used his master's property for his own personal gain. At least that's what I think is happening in the text. There are various different interpretations of what was going on culturally at this moment. I tend to think the simplest answer is the right answer. So let's read along. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I've been fired. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, when I'm fired, uh, people may receive me into their houses. This is a key to understanding the parable. He's going to do something here that's going to create a hospitable environment between him and others in his community. What's he going to do? So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. What's he doing? Well, there's lots of ideas about what he's doing. I think what he's doing is he's taking out the charge that he had added to the interest. And so he had figured out a way to sort of uh, make his master money and make himself some money along the way. That was his dishonesty and his wasteful management. And so he had been doing this kind of thing. So he's taken out his cut. Then he said to another, uh, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. See, by canceling his added fee, the manager created friends. That's kind of the idea of the parable here. And at the same time, he made the owner appear benevolent to the community. So he was able to be really shrewd in his dealings. So shrewd, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In other words, he was clever. He came up with a clever idea. I know what I'll do. I'll create goodwill with all those people who owe me and my master money because he added his extra fee. He took that fee away, and then he created goodwill between those people that he had uh, been charging exorbitant interest to and also gave a good reputation to his manager because he never had any expectation of receiving any more than that reduced price anyway. And so he commends this dishonest manager for his shrewdness. See, the manager was commended for his shrewdness, and the idea here... The big idea is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, that we are called to be even more shrewd because we have more cause to be shrewd. Listen to how, the, how it goes in Luke 16. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, he's saying, do you see how people are in the world are really shrewd with the resources and what are they doing? They're just gaining more and more perishable stuff. But you, you get to be shrewd with your resources in such a way that you can make an eternal impact on the lives of real people in the world. How much more shrewd should we be with what we've been given so that we're investing in ways that makes sense for benefiting real people who really matter? See, this parable is about how we manage what God has given us. How we manage, how shrewd are we in the management of it? Uh, in Luke 16, 12, it says, And if you have not been faithful... 
with what you've been given, then how can you be trusted with more? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, you're the manager, not the master. Who will give you that which is your own? See, God has set some values for us, for you and me, for how he wants his resources used and invested in the world. And we're to be thinking about what I've been gifted, all the resources of my life, everything, not just my money, but my time, my energy, my talents, my abilities, to be looking at all the resources I've been given. And to say, how can I steward these resources in such a way that I reflect the values of God's kingdom? Because everything I have been given is a kingdom resource. Everything I've been given is a resource to be used for the kingdom. He's the master, we're the manager. In Luke 12, he instructed his disciples, seek the kingdom. In other places in the Bible, you'll say, seek first the kingdom. The idea here is that we're to be kingdom-minded as we think. What would God have us to do as citizens of his kingdom? How would he have us to, to use the resources he's blessed us with? And there is a distinct kingdom ethic that guides what we are called to steward. And he's been instructing all along the way in Luke's gospel on how to do that. So in the kingdom... What do we do? We reject greed, wholeheartedly reject greed. He says to the Pharisees in Luke 11, he says, you, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Now, greed is to be wholeheartedly rejected within the Christian community. In the kingdom, we embrace generosity. That's one of our, one of our kind of key ideas. Uh, he tells us a parable in Luke 12 about a, somebody who has so much wealth, he has to build more barns for all of his wealth, and then he just dies suddenly. He goes, what are you going to do with all that wealth now that you're dead? And he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, who is not generous. He's like, be generous with what you have. Another big idea Jesus has been developing in Luke is that in the kingdom we practice just economics. I'll just use that phrase, just economics or economic justice. We read this uh, parable a few weeks ago in Luke 14. We were looking at the, the, the parable of the banquet. And when Jesus confronts the, the, sort of the, the, the person who puts on this big dinner party, he says, when you give a dinner party or a banquet, what he's about to do here is about to teach us something about the ethics of his kingdom. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so he's arguing here for a just economics. In other words, he's saying you in your mealtime celebration should be eating meals in such a way that you decrease the divide between those who are rich and those who are poor. In fact, one commentator said, if you were to live out this ethic, what would happen is the, you would abolish the divide between the rich and the poor. Another way of looking at it is say any, any, any application of your own personal economics that increases the divide between those who are rich and those who are poor is a violation of the kingdom ethic. That the application of our own personal economics should be uh, decreasing the distance between those who are rich and those who are poor. It should be bringing them together. So to be good news, we've got to be asking the question, what good for people does God want me to do with what he has given me? Like, what, what good is he calling me to do? In Luke 16, 9, people, is, people are, sorry, are the, the, the main idea. He says, I, I want you to look at the world. See how they're making friends with their resources? They're making friends that are just all transactional? And it's all about accumulating more resources? I, I want to I challenge you to be shrewd with your resources in such a way, that's what Jesus is saying, that you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that you can have an eternal impact. 
So use like this unrighteous wealth, like this, this wealth that is unrighteous by virtue of its own limitations and what it does to the human heart. Invest in such a way that you're investing in things that last. In other words, there are no good investments in this world. Like really, I mean, investments that, that last anyway. He, he argues in verse 9, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by, un, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, the unrighteous wealth, when it fails, because it will fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, invest your resources in such a way that you are making an eternal impact. To say it this way, there are no good investments in this world other than your investment in people, because people matter. So make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so you can have these friends, eternal friends. Uh, one commentator wrote it this way, invest your resources into a community of friends that will survive beyond death. I couldn't find out where I heard that from, so I just claimed it as my own. Um, but invest your resources in such a way that you're, you're creating a community of friends that will last forever. That's what he's arguing. Be shrewd in the way that you use your resources so that you make an eternal impact with what you've been given. That it makes an impact in real people's lives. And look, if you're not a Christian or if you're far from God or if you thought, you know, this is kind of like, you're, okay, you're, you're catching it, you're hearing it for the first time, I want you to know you know this intuitively that people matter more than property. Like we intuitively know that people matter more, even if we live like property matters more sometimes. Like we intuitively know that. I, I want you to think about this. Uh, I was, uh, you know, maybe you saw it on the news this week too. I was, uh, I was in meetings in Orlando uh, early this week and I, I, I got done with the meeting. I was walking by a TV in the hotel lobby and I saw the tornado in Nashville. This is not the picture of that tornado, but just the tornado in Nashville. And I thought to myself, man, I remember what it was like because I was in Florida uh, when I lived through a tornado. Like it struck my building and the, apart and the, uh, the uh, apartment complex that I lived in and it struck the trailer park across the street. And I remember being there to see the carnage and all the loss of life and how um, how marked I was by that. And I was kind of revisiting those things. So I was in Florida, not far from where that happened and watching the news about Nashville. Whenever a tragedy happens, people intuitively say things like, it's going to be okay. We just lost our property. Our family is safe. Or they say they lost everything because they lost their family. Because what happens when a natural disaster happens and you lose your property, but if, you, if your family is saved, you realize that your family is what really mattered. Or if it, if the worst happens and you lose your family and your property is saved, you realize the property didn't really matter that much at all. Like we intuitively know it. We, we sense it deep in our soul that people matter. But the gravitational pull of wealth is towards self-centeredness is what happens. So the wealthier we get, the more self-centered we get, the more we can satisfy every, you know, one of our fleshly desires. And what happens when you become self-centered in your wealth is you become less other-centered and you become more selfish. And what happens, you begin to value things over people. And that's why he means by unrighteous wealth in verse 9. And I've been like looking at this and rereading it and going, what does he mean, unrighteous wealth? Why is he calling wealth unrighteous? Well, Joel Green in his commentary said, Luke has a particular view of wealth. And he highlights this aspect of wealth over and over and over again in Luke's gospel. According to Luke, the rule of wealth is manifest in theft, exploitation, hoarding, conspicuous consumption, and the more general disregard for outsiders and persons of low status and need. It just seems like wealth has this capacity to further divide those who have means and those who don't, those who have privilege and those who, who don't. And evil at its highest potency is when we either treat people like property or we value property over people. Now, you don't have to like, 
burn a lot of calories thinking this through. You can see lots of places where people have been treated like property in the world, and you go, that's evil. I mean, that's the, that's the, I mean, that's the pinnacle of evil. Or you can look around the world, and you can look through human history and say, when have people been treated like property, or when, they, when, when has property been valued more than people? And you can see people have been oppressed. And so what he's arguing here in the text is, disciples, Jesus is saying, we ought to be the most innovative people on the planet when it comes to how we use our resources because people matter. We should be shrewd. We should be more shrewd in the world because it's not just about accumulating wealth. It's about dispensing kingdom resources to make kingdom impact in, real life, in the real lives of people. We need to be dreaming and executing ways to invest God's resources for the benefit of people. Like that's his big idea. He says in verse 8, we should be more shrewd. He says in verse 9, we should make friends that are eternal. In verse 10, he says, we should be faithful. In verse 11, he says, we should be faithful. In verse 12, he says, we should be faithful. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, we should be faithful and shrewd and innovative and courageous and bold in the way we use our resources to benefit the, the lives of people. We should really be evaluating how we're doing it. See, innovation is going to require an honest, listen, an honest and critical assessment of both our intentions and our systems. And I, I don't know how else to teach this, and so if this goes over your head, I am really sorry, um, because it's not your world, but I'll just talk to you from my profession, okay? So I'm going to talk a little inside baseball when it comes to church leadership. Sometimes the systems we create end up working against the gospel purpose we're trying to fulfill, okay? So sometimes we can create a system that's really good intentioned, like we're going to use kingdom resources to make kingdom impact, and we set up a system that violates the very thing we're trying to do. Here's an example. American church planting has set the standard of planting churches that are self-sustaining in three years. And I work with church plants all over the world, and especially here in the United States, and we have set that standard. In fact, the organization I work with sometimes called Stadia, we, we would say that 90% of our churches are uh, faithfully fulfilling the calling uh, by year three, even by year five, and we're very proud of that. We've made very successful church plants all over uh, the country. And that seems like an honest enough goal to set. I mean, you wouldn't set out to set a goal for churches to fail. But then you start applying some real reason to it. Well, if you're attracting talent, really talented people, and you're saying to those talented people, we really have a goal for you that you'll be self-sustaining for three years, where do you think those talented people are going to choose to plant churches? So I was reading a book on the, on the plane to Florida this last week on Monday, and I got, I, got, uh, I, got to the, I got to the airport. I mean, I landed. My plane landed like at 10 o'clock in Orlando. And I just got done reading this book, and a, a buddy of mine wrote this book, Mark DeBoss, and it was like a coming revolution of church economics, and, and I was eating it up, and it was like changing, like change, it was like, it was, I was, it was a lot of yes, but a lot of changing of, of framing of my thinking as I was reading it. And my plane landed at 10, I was like, man, there's probably not any time to network or whatever. And I don't know if any of you guys are like, just like, you love to network, but I love to network. And, um, and so I was like, man, there's probably not any time. It's 10 o'clock, everybody's probably heading to bed. And, and I got a text from a buddy named Mott Mitchell, and he goes, hey, I've got a, uh, I'm sitting here at this, this place, and, and if you want to stop by, uh, I'm sitting with Mark DeMoz, and we'd like to hang out with you tonight if you're, if you're available. And I said, I am totally available, but it was 10 o'clock, and I was like, how long are you going to be there? And he's like, we could be here as long as you want to be here. And so I, I got there, we stayed until about 1 o'clock, we just ran through his book. And in the book, there, there was a quote in particular that stuck out to me, and I want to talk to him about it at length because I've been thinking about this planting churches in the three years thing and why our, our best and our brightest church planters are going to rich and middle-class suburban communities. 
And what happened uh, in the book is, is he, he pulls in some data from 2009, 2000 to 2009. It's older data, but the newer data is showing similar trends. Listen to what he says. Between 2000 and 2009, churches of affluence with a median household income of more than 60,000 grew at an average of 17.6%. As median household income dropped, however, so did the growth rate of churches. The study found that evangelical churches with a median household income of 50,000 to 59,000 experienced 7% growth. Now here's the kicker. While churches on the far end of the graph with a median household income of less than 30,000 shrank by 4.3%. And it, 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 I mean, that, I read that and it struck me. Like, like a punch, like a punch in the gut. And I was like, I, was, I had a conversation with the Lord like right then about it. And I was like, have we set up a system that, that, that has been marginalizing the poor? That the best and brightest are going, oh, three years is a mark. And I'm going to plant a church where I can be successful in three years. And I'm going to choose wealthy, uh, upper middle class and middle class communities where I can plant churches. And, and if you start to watch what churches have done, they've moved from urban corridors to the suburbs. And they basically have said to those who are poor, those who are ethnically diverse, particularly in those poor communities, um, you know, good luck. And if we set up systems that only benefit churches in affluent neighborhoods, we will have turned our backs on the poor and marginalized, which will do violence to the grace of God that we preach. And here's what the Holy Spirit was saying to me. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit speaks to you, but sometimes the Holy Spirit goes, hey, dummy, to me, you know? And he goes, hey, dude, like, seriously, listen. And, and, this, is, and, and this is a verse that just kept coming to my mind over and over and over again. I don't know if this is how it happens for you. It's how it happens for me. Sometimes a verse that I've read in my past will come to the front, and it's just like up there, like, just ringing a bell continually, and this bell just kept being rung out of Galatians 2, when the Apostle Paul was like uh, talking about in Galatians 2, how he was being commissioned to be preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and how the church was like, yes, we want to commission you to the Gentiles, and as Paul's on the way out the door, the guys are like, oh, wait, wait a second, hey, Paul, don't forget the poor. Like, why, like, why, why would, why is this in the Bible? Why is Galatians 2.10 there? Well, because it's easy to forget the poor and to set up systems of doing church and to set up systems of doing personal economics, like our personal finances, in such a way that the only beneficiary is us. And the Apostle Paul is being reminded, ah, that's, don't forget the poor. And he said, that's the very thing I was, I was eager to do, to remember the poor. Look, we need to think critically about the kingdom ethic and the stewardship of our resources, the stewarding of our resources. Mark in his book says we need to be challenging what is, it, what is in order to inspire and inform what is yet to come by sharing our understanding and a model for disruptive economic innovation. And I've been giving this a lot of thought, and this is just, I know it's inside baseball, but I just want you to know where my mind has been as I'm thinking this through, that innovations in church planting that enable the church to serve the poor, what could they be? What would, what would that look like? And I've been thinking about planting businesses and then churches out of businesses, and Mark talks about that in his book. Planting networks of three. There's a church in Phoenix I've been paying attention to, and I had a meeting with a couple weeks ago, and, and they're planting in, in triads for every two suburban churches. They're planting one in an ethnically, uh, an ethnically diverse and, and, and impoverished community. And I'm watching what they're doing to try to solve this problem. Co-vocational church planting where people have said, you know what, I don't want to leave my career. I want to be a marketplace leader, but at the same time, I'm going to donate some of my time, 15, 20% of my time, to planting a church. It's keeping my, my primary job so I'm not leaning on the church for my uh, for my income. I'm getting my income from my vocation, but I'm, but I'm planting a church even though I'm staying in the marketplace. And there's some, lots of good thinking around those kinds of things. 
And I've been just sort of saying, we ought to be the most innovative people on the planet because people matter to God, and we've got to find ways to make sure our economics are just and that we're doing the things that we should be doing to care for the poor and the oppressed and those in need. See, generosity from a biblical perspective is more than just what happens with your money. It's whole life generosity. And that's what we've been calling everybody to in this series, Be Good News. You have so many more resources at your disposal than just your money. And we're called to be using all of our resources for the glory of God and the service of others. Our resources, though, they always flow toward what our heart truly desires. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, says Jesus. So if you want to know what you really value, you can just follow the money. Follow the time. Follow the investment of your personal equity and personal resources. Now, this next line is one I really wholeheartedly believe in, and I'm unashamed to say it. And there are a lot of great causes in the world. But I want to tell you that I believe with all my heart there's no greater cause than the mission of God at work through the people of God. just isn't one. Because the work that we get to do together, all of us, the work we get to do together makes an internal impact. It's an investment that doesn't just change uh, you know, our own economic well-being or make us better off financially or store up you know, more treasures for us here on earth. It's, a, it's the, our, the investment we make together is the investment we make in, e, in, in eternity. It's making friends. Be, he says in verse 8, be more shrewd. Make friends. Make friends, verse 9, for eternity. Like make eternal friendships. So we all ought to be cheerfully investing in the things that have an impact. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. What that means is, what does that mean? Well, I've never met an unhappy, generous person. Just haven't met one. They don't exist. Because generous people are happy people because their heart is set on fire by their generosity. So God's plan for funding his mission is the stewardship of his resources in our generosity. The Apostle Paul, when he instructs the church in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, uh, on the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up. And what Paul kept doing all the time with that stored resources is serve the poor, cared for those in need. And so generosity is a, it's a new thing, right, for you and me. It's a new thing for a lot of us. And, uh, and so we put together a long time ago this thing called the generosity journey, just a way for you to think about your own generosity. And, and if you're a rookie giver, that's not a, like a, a, you know, it's not saying that you're, you know, you're, uh, you're bad, it's just you're starting out. This is not a, a, a value statement, it's just like a rookie giver is just kind of saying, okay, I'm new to this, what can I give? That's what the rookie giver asked. A, a regular giver asked, what can I give regularly? Like, what can I make a part of my life? How can I make generosity a regular part of my life? A, a, a relative giver is asking a diff, really a very different question. Do I give more to Starbucks than I give to God? They're asking, what do my resources say about my values? What, do, what is that, what I invest in, both in terms of time, money, and talent, what does it say about what I value? Uh, a relational giver is asking an entirely different question. That is, is my giving changing me? You know, Vanessa and I have, have struggled with this over the years because we automate our giving to New City. We automate our giving to a lot of other organizations that we serve. And, and there's often uh, been times where we've had to say, you know what, uh, we need to make sure we open the whole family on this generosity thing. And so we, we've taken some big steps of generosity in the past. And we'll get the kids together and we'll hold hands and we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord, like, hey, th this is going to make a real impact in our life. This is going to be a real adjustment in how we do things. But is this, is this, is this going to be the right thing? Is this the right thing to give our money to? And when this is the mission of God, it's almost always the right thing. And uh, we want our giving to change us, to shape us. We want it to, make, to, to change our behavior, change our lifestyle. A radical giver is asking a totally different question, though. 
They're not asking, how much do I give? They're asking, God, how much do I keep? Is there, is there, a, is there a standard of living that you think is right for me, God, and, and, and what should I do with the rest? And a radical giver is really asking a really bold and powerful question. We would call this generosity journey discipleship. In fact, this whole Be Good News initiative is about discipleship. So what is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus, and by our definition at New City, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who bows the knee to Jesus in every area of life with increasing measure. They're saying, Jesus, you are the Lord of my marriage. You're the Lord of my singleness. You're the Lord of my, you're, you're the Lord of my studies. You're the Lord of my work. You're the Lord of my finances. You're the Lord of my time. You're the Lord of all of it. And so I'm just identifying every domain of my life and saying, you're the Lord of it. So what you want to do with that time, what you want to do with that resource, what you want to do with this investment, that's your business because I'm, 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 the, I'm the manager. I'm not the master. And so I'm bowing the knee to you, Lord Jesus, in every area of life with increasing measure. In Luke 16, 13, uh, Jesus concludes his ideas here. No servant can serve two masters for he will either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, bow the knee to Jesus in every area of your life, even your finances. Bow the knee to Him. So we're in this initiative called Be Good News. You can find out more about it at begoodnews.church. Uh, we've got a vision video there and a bunch of resources. Uh, we put together a two-year ministry budget. It's in the booklet. There's like every other chair today had a booklet on it. If you didn't get one before, you can get one today. It just says four people in the city with their lives, and we broke up our budget in those, those three categories, and we made a proposal for a budget for two years, and our proposal is $2.8 million for two years. That's not an addition to what we bring in. It's just our budget. And we think it's really smart to say, hey, here's all the things we want to do in the next two years, and let's together commit to resource it, and you can read all about that in those booklets. Uh, tomorrow night, we have uh, a pre-commitment night on March 9th, where we're going to be asking those who are ready to commit. Uh, to, to the, what this budget entails and all the different pieces, hiring staff and furthering the kingdom here in our city and, and around the world and all the different pieces of it. Uh, one of the pieces is our unique presence in the city, and so we're hosting this uh, pre-commitment night at North Church's facility, the facility that we're, we're purchasing. It's less than a mile away from here, and in the program you'll see uh, directions to that facility. So we'd love for you to come. You're invited, 6.30 to 7.30. We will pray. We will worship. If you're ready to commit, you can commit that night as well uh, to the whole deal. It's going to be a lot of fun. So our plan is to purchase this building in the next 30 to 45 days. I think that's the window we're in right now. Maybe it's 50 days, but soon we'll be uh, closing in on this deal, and as we do, we'll then become the landlords for North Church, and we'll lease to them until May of 2021, at which point we'll find that as our permanent home. Uh, the Be Good News response cards, if you're looking at the commitment cards, uh, are purple, and you can find those around, and we have plenty of them around. On the back of those is our plan. These are the varied numbers of gifts that we would have to have over that two-year period uh, to make that budget, and all we've asked everybody to do is look at that and pray, ask Jesus, and whatever Jesus tells you to do, do that, and I'm not going to argue with Jesus. All right, when you open up the inside, there's a way to calculate that. So what you'd plan to give this year, and that, if that's zero, that's fine. And if you're a rookie giver and you're asking, what can I give? this time, then you just write in that next blank, this is what I plan to give over the next year. Then you multiply that to, by two, because it's a two-year initiative. Then if you have stored resources, you can add that uh, to, your lit, to, to, to the amount, total those up, and that's your commitment uh, for Be Good News. See, a good news manager uses their resources in a way that honors the ethics of the master. For Jesus, generosity involved whole life sacrifice. That's what it involved. And so if you want to look at what it looks like to manage your money like Jesus would manage your money, then you go, okay, Jesus, how did you do it? How did you live? What was your posturing in life? 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This, this kind of rings that bell of that banquet dinner, doesn't it? Just saying, you know what? Do the things necessary to, divide, to, to, to decrease that divide between those who are rich and those who are poor. Do the things necessary, and Jesus did it ultimately. He who was rich became poor, since poverty might become rich. See, Jesus is the kind of friend who offers everything to create a friendship with even his enemies. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what we're asking New City to do is to commit to be good news for people in the city of their lives. Whole life generosity. So this next part, I don't mean to be like um, condescending. I probably do mean to be, I, I probably do. Um, I don't want to be, I don't want to mean to be condescending. But here's the thing. You're an American, you swim in this water, I swim in this water, I know what it's like. Uh, it's easy for us to go, dude, I get it, pastor, this is great. Uh, how much do you want? Let's write a check to the church, and then you go be good news for people in the city with your life. And if this becomes like that, then all we've done is just like reinforce the basic consumeristic uh, sickness that has plagued our church. Not our church, New City, but our church in America. So, so for people, that bucket, if it means everybody, it means nobody. In the city, if it just means like generally the city, but not some place that I live in the city, that just it doesn't mean anyone. If, if with our lives doesn't really call me specifically to lay down something of myself for the benefit of somebody else, and it, you know, it's, it's not real gospel. So this is not a calling to be for people as a general category. It's a calling to a specific people in the places that you work, live, and play, and it's a calling to sacrifice our resources on their behalf. So for people, it, it, means, it means somebody, like you actually know. So Thursday night we had a we had service and and uh, and we we did this for the first time on Thursday night and on, on every chair when you came in today was there was a personal response card and that you can grab one of those because we're gonna need those here in a second and those personal response cards are just a way for me to say you know what I'm gonna make this personal for this for this message to matter to me for it to to really mean a response for me it's gonna matter I've got to have a person and it just says you know when you think about four the category for who. What person or group? In, uh, a place that you work, live, or play. Uh, with, how's God bless you to be a blessing? Just simple. Just kind of simple walk through it. Here's one that somebody wrote on Thursday night. For my husband, in our life, with my trust and loyalty. Here's another one. For abused children in my city, with my time and resources. Here's another one. For Claire in my social time, with my time, love, and encouragement. Uh, this one's mine. And I, when I, I, last week when we showed Bethany's video, uh, it was be, I, I watched it a couple of times before we showed it in services. And I had one of those moments. I don't have them very often. I mean, I, every once in a while the Lord just kind of, you know, lumps you on the head and says, pay attention. And it was one of those moments for me, just so pay attention. 
And I just kind of started paying attention. So I preached this message just now, right? And you could easily hear that message and go, you're right, there's no cause more worthy than the cause of God's people on mission, doing His work, and man, there's nothing that matters more, and boy, eternal, eternity's in the balance. And, and you know what? Like there, there are people who really feel that urgency at a high level, and I don't know anybody who feels that urgency at a high level like that, like pastors. And in my life right now, I mean, I can count them. I can, I can name them. I can look at them in my, in my mind's eye. Pastors who have offered their families on, on the altar of their church Good intentions. But, but their families are a wreck. They're burned out. They're tired. And I'm looking at my friends and their struggle and their suffering and their relationships. And, you know, nobody advocates for community more than pastors, but nobody practices it less than pastors do. And, um, and so, I, I, I mean, one of the gifts that God's given me is fundraising. I'm really good at it. Uh, if you got some money, I'm, I'm really happy to ask you for it. Um, and, you know, I've got a cause for you, okay? And, and so um, I wrote down, for pastors and their marriages in my city, because I'm going to start there uh, with, with fundraising. And I'm going to raise some money, and we're going to take some pastors away on a retreat, and we're going to invest in their marriages. Uh, we're going to make a difference in our city by caring for pastors in our city, because I want the churches in our city to be strong. And so today in service, we're going to ask you to think about who it is for you. Who's God calling you to? And what place that you live, work, or play? And with what resource? How has he blessed you to be a blessing? Because this means everybody doesn't mean anybody. And this is just about giving money to the church so the church can go be good news. That's garbage. Uh, that's not discipleship. And so let's think about that. Father in heaven, I pray you lead our church to be a good news force in our city, that we'd represent you well in the city. We start conversations all over the place. And I am being wrecked right now by Don't Forget the Poor, just being wrecked by it. And I don't know exactly all of what you want me to do with that. I really don't. I don't know how you want our church totally to respond to all that, but I, I do not want to be guilty of forgetting the poor. Um, man, our city has plenty of poverty to go around. There's a lot of work to be done. Could you use us as a church? If we surrendered ourselves to you, could you use us as a church? I hope you will. Um, to continue to make a, a dent in the poverty of our city for your glory and the love of others. That the kids who suffer and struggle in our city, the, the worst state to be a child, oh my gosh, Lord, there's so much work to be done. Uh, help us to be humble enough to receive your leadership, uh, wise enough to listen to your voice, that we might make a real difference in, the, in, our, in our lives. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. You're the master. Help me to manage it well. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.